Investors Chronicle. Hello and welcome back to the IC Interviews. I'm Mary McDougall and I'm delighted to have a particularly distinguished guest today in Carl Sternberg. Carl is currently chairman of the Investment Committee of Christchurch, one of the largest stocks bridge in diamonds. He also holds a handful of non-executive directorships. He's on the board of Jupiter Asset Management and he recently became chairman of the Monks Investment Trust. He is also a non-executive director of Herald Investment Trust, Clipstone Logistics REIT, Lowland Investment Company and JP Morgan Elect. Previously, he set up his own asset management firm, which was bought by Towers Watson in 2013. And before that, he was chief investment officer at Deutsch Asset Management. Today, we're going to talk about some of the major concerns facing investors and why investment trusts may be becoming increasingly attractive. If we kick off by talking about inflation, because it's a topic at the front of a lot of investors' minds, central bankers so far have stuck to the narrative that they think elevated inflation will be transitory. Is this something you agree with? Back in the 80s, 
something called credibility theory was, was, was all the rage, and that was that, that central banks that were independent of governments or had a clear objective would um, would actually in itself create lower inflation, and, and certainly we've, we've seen that, but it's not necessarily cause and effect. Um, they have taken the credit for these huge tectonic forces that have been obvious since the 80s, the deregulation, uh, the rise of China, globalization more generally, technological innovation, deunionization, mass movement of people. All those things have been disinflationary. Um, there's nothing that to do with central banks. Uh, so they've taken the credit, and there's an enormous amount of credibility which they have derived from that. But now I think the question is, do they have excess credibility, or are investors going to be conned into thinking, oh yes, well, of course it's transitory, because the central banks say it's transitory. But they would say that, wouldn't they? And it's really interesting reading the Bank of England quarterly bulletin, or the monetary report, and it says, well, you know, wages are rising, but it, it's all a, a compositional effect, don't, don't worry. And the Fed says, well, you know, all these various prices are going up, but don't worry, they're all temporary, the oil price, the, the copper price, every price you look at, and, and wages are, are rising, but don't worry, it's all temporary. Um, and Christine Lagarde at the ECB has said, oh, now we need to be much more symmetric in our approach to inflation, and, and we shouldn't worry about uh, overshooting the targets in the short run. But, the Federal Reserve has said that it expects policy to be loose for years to, to come. Um, they've carried on buying uh, government bonds in the, in, in the bond market. They've carried on buying corporate debt in the bond market. The, the Bank of England is still buying £20 billion of government debt. Um, so they're sort of talking their own book. Um, but at the moment, it's working because we had this spike up in bond yields at the beginning of the year. And it was a pretty ghastly time to be an investor in government bonds. I mean, the, the all stocks return in the UK was something like minus 8.5%. And, and that's something which we might come back to because I think people shouldn't uh, forget the, the pain that duration can inflict in a period of rising rates. But since March, bond yields have come off a bit. And there are a whole number of reasons for that. One is that people decided they believe the central banks. Um, another is that China is in fact uh, undergoing a bit of a slowdown generated by government policy. Um, there's, a, there's a lot more COVID around and it's quite clear that uh, things are not going to get completely back to normal straight away. So um, it was supposed to be having Freedom Day next week in the UK, but as we know, it's, it's now freedom with, with constraints. Um, and so I think that you know, a lot of people have bought the story that this is temporary nature because they want to believe it. They want to believe it. But everywhere we look, prices are rising. Um, and so I think we need to be very much on our guard. And investors should be... It may prove that that is the case, that this is temporary. But I think that the, the, the highest risk of it being a permanent change in policy uh, for a long time. Um, if you think about the last... Um, periods of policy mixture we had. In the 1980s, it was very tight money, very high interest rates, control of money supply, um, but quite loose fiscal policy uh, in the United States. Same in the 1990s, tight money and, and sort of loose fiscal policy. In the noughties, it became tight fiscal policy and loose money to deal with the global financial crisis. And now we have this policy setting of loose money and loose fiscal policy. 
And we have not had that policy combination since the early 1970s. And each, each of those monetary policy and fiscal policy is more potent when used in combination with the others. So um, I do think that we're, investors should be preparing for a period of, of higher inflation and a period of policy instability, a period in which there are some lurches in policy making, um, which we're not used to. We've been used to gradual and um, smooth transitions punctuated by these these crises, um, where central banks are to some extent to blame for those because they've goods and services price inflation has been under control. But what they have done is create another type of inflation, which is asset price inflation. So central bank policy in the last 30 years has really been creating a series of, of bubbles, and the bubbles have moved from one part of the market to another. And with each bubble bursting, they add some more monetary fuel to the fire, and the bubble re-emerges. Um, I, I do think this is a time to be, to be at least positioned in a way that uh, allows you to take, uh, uh, to have some protection if inflation does turn out to be permanent, if we get lurches in, in government policy. Yeah, so in terms of policy, would that be their options to increase interest rates? Curb quantitative easing, um, which, as you said, would likely hit the parts of parts of equities that have been inflated. Which assets do you think might be worst impacted if monetary policy became tighter? Well, I think that the in the long run, inflation you're rewarded for through owning equities and other real assets, including property. But all the evidence of the last hundred odd years uh, of data is that um, beneath, with an inflation rate lower than 4%, equities are fine and property is fine. Bonds might struggle unless governments decide to try and fight the bond markets and uh, intervene at the long end in order to keep rates lower, which Christine Lagarde has said very clearly will take on the markets. And the Federal Reserve has history here in the 1960s. It undertook some cooperation twist where it tried to control the long-term rate of interest. Ultimately, it failed, but it certainly could have an effect in the short run. But above 4% inflation, um, no asset is, is a safe place to be. No asset. Um, they'll be fine in the long run, but in the short run, rising interest rates, and rising real rates would be painful for all assets, and I think that's something which everybody needs to be prepared for. Um, but in the long run, equities and property would be the better place to be. The worst place to be is to be in nominal fixed interest assets, uh, where it would be a permanent depletion of, of capital, um, whereas it's not a permanent depletion of capital in the case of equities and, and property. Um, but Nowhere is safe, I think, is my important message when, when rates are rising. And when rates are rising in a way where we don't feel that the policymakers are fully in control or have full knowledge of what they're, they're doing. They're all, when, we, when we realize that the emperor has no, new clo- has no clothes, um, it, that's going to be a pretty unstable period for, for all markets. Yeah. And you mentioned earlier that you want to be careful about being in long-duration assets. That's quite straightforward um, 
in the fixed income area. But how can you tell what your duration is in the equity markets? Is that is that clear or? value stocks are low duration because it's, it's profits today versus growth stocks which are long duration because it's profits tomorrow. Um, I don't think it's as simple as that because I think that there is such accelerated structural change going on in economies because of the application of technology and in future the application of artificial intelligence and there's lo- lots more to come um, but actually um, you know, growth stocks Aren't just um, aren't just aspiration. They're deliberate. They're, they're becoming um, a bit utility-like, but with growth characteristics. So I don't think it's really as simple as that distinction in the past. Um, if you look at the uh, at the technology stocks, they're generating huge amounts of profit. It's not all it's not all about the future. Um, but traditionally, it would be that distinction: the value versus versus growth. But it's not going to be as clear in coming uh, years, I think if we get a period of policy instability, I think what it means is that you don't want to take a big bet either way. You should have both value stocks and growth stocks in a portfolio. Yeah, and technology is such a a big area, it sort of covers every industry now. Maybe the distinctions are becoming increasingly blurred. Absolutely. In, um, just in the context of you saying that um, real assets are sort of the the better option, even though nothing's safe. The infrastructure investment trusts have boomed um, in the last 18 months. I think I counted that between secondary fundraisings and listings, they've raised four billion of the London London listed infrastructure trusts. What are your thoughts on on these um, investment options? They they do have some in, inflation linked returns, um, but they trade at quite large premiums. Um, and there's some greyness about how they're actually valued. Do you, do you think infrastructure is an attractive area to invest in, the diversification? I do, actually, yes. I think that the, the, the stock market is proving to be quite innovative, and the investment trust sector in particular is the perfect set of vehicles to own illiquid assets. You can know, it's always been problematic getting exposure to uh, illiquidity and to the illiquidity premium that you get paid um, because open-ended funds don't make sense for uh, for those sort of assets, um, whereas investment trusts do. So investment trusts are the ideal vehicle to be raising money for infrastructure, for royalties, for um, secured lending, uh, for digital infrastructure. There's, there's also the digital infrastructure world now as well, um, renewables, uh, energy storage, there's a lot of interesting areas there that that are good substitutes for uh, owning what would normally be the inflation-linked asset, which is index-linked government bonds. The problem for an investor in index-linked government bonds in the UK is that the matching requirements for pension funds mean that there's an artificial market of forced buyers who, who, who buy um, index-linked bonds designed to promise you minus 4% real per annum. Well, if I were guaranteed to make 4% poorer each year, I suppose you at least know how much poorer you're going to be at the end. Um, but it's not, not a way to generate wealth. So I sort of take index linked in the UK off the menu. And I also think that um, there's duration risk there, that when nominal rates rise, real rates tend to rise too. Um, it would 
certainly what we saw when inflation was, was a problem and government tried to, um, to curb uh, inflation. Nominal rates and real rates uh, ended up rising. Um, although in the UK, actually, the real rates stayed, stayed pretty, pretty negative because we had such an inflation problem. Uh, but certainly in the US, real rates rose as well. So you've got to be a bit careful with indexing. But I've taken this thing off the menu because of that painful minus 4% real. Um, I do think that US inflation-linked securities, US tips, um, uh, certainly with a low duration, not to five years, and hedged into sterling, uh, could be uh, a good place to have some security because their yield is just minus 1% real per annum, but at least it's not minus 4% real per annum, and you're not taking uh, significant duration risk, and you're not taking currency risk. And you can buy those through ETFs or, or um, actively managed, but uh, those should be part of the, uh, somebody's uh, higher um, inflation risk portfolio than, uh, than we've been used to in the, in the past. But I do also think that that infrastructure um, is an interesting part of people's portfolios. I think the pricing of some investment trusts at the moment uh, might be a bit well because a lot of them are sitting on a premium because they've had this exact conversation that we've we've been having. Um, so you know, entry point could be could be important. But an asset class is it a good one, absolutely. And investment trust the right way to hold it, absolutely. That's interesting you mentioned pension funds um, having to hold government bonds. Do you think as more pensions are held in defined contribution schemes, this is going to change the composition of um, where pensions are invested in the UK, and might this have an, an impact on the UK markets? Yes, I do. I think it's been a terrible self-inflicted wound on the UK, um, the, what's happened with defined benefit pension schemes. Um, Gordon Brown should hang his head in shame. These the previous Tory government, yeah, between them, uh, the solvency requirements, the minimum funding requirements, the way in which the, the schemes are valued, um, has forced such schemes A to shut, but B to match with um, match liabilities with um, with index linked and, and other government securities, and they've been big sellers of equities. Which is one of the reasons why the UK equity market, which we might come come to, has been such a poor performer. But DC um, is growing. It it should be. It, I wish the government had been as brave as the government in Australia, uh, for example, where they should be legislated that. Uh, 11% of people's income, but I think it's 11, um, uh, should be invested in a uh, superannuation fund. And it's seen a massive growth in the pensions industry in Australia. And most of that growth has gone into equity markets. And for Australia, that's a bit of a problem because the equity market is not big enough to cope with the size of, um, of assets. So a lot of that's gone overseas. So Australia has, has uh, fixed the roof while the sun's been shining as the Chinese have been buying lots of iron ore and other things you dig out of the ground in Australia. But DC here is growing, not as fast, but I, I think that the, the days of 60-40 um, as being your your benchmark 60 in equities and 40 in government bonds should really be questioned. A, what the composition of that 40 should be, and B, whether you should actually have a higher percentage in equities through your entire life. Um, as long as you're able to um, cope with the significant drawdowns that do occur, which means having some cash in it, which creates a drag, but also prevents you from having to sell assets that temporarily depress the value. Very good article by Martin Wolf in the FT 
at the SL at the weekend on, um, on why 64 is dead and why, why investors should own everything in a pension fund in, in equities. Um, I would say it should be equities and infrastructure and property, um, but you know, bonds, bonds shouldn't really be a significant portion of it. Um, I'd rather have a bit, bit of cash to, to be able to draw down when markets are going through a, a, tough, a tough time. Um, but I think that's a very interesting discussion and it will be interesting to see whether um, people do move away from the 60-40 and, and stick with equities for longer. I mean, after all, the yield is significantly higher. All of my career until recently, it was that equities yielded less than government bonds uh, because you were going to receive dividend growth. Now, equities, of course, yield significantly more than government bonds and you're going to get income growth in the, in the long run. So I think the case for any bonds, other than a psychological one that you know, people rush to bonds in, a, in the midst of a crisis, well, you just shouldn't look. You know, if the best, best way of managing your portfolio is not to look too often. Self-discipline in not looking yeah. uh, is, <laughs> is, is, is the greatest virtue in, in investing. Just leave it. Um, and if you are in drawdown stage, just have some cash so you're not having to sell equities while they're, they're being drawn down. But um, well, while you're in a, in a, a bear market, I mean, you wouldn't want to be selling last March when everything was looking, looking horrendous. If you've got a bit of cash, you could just have drawn that down. Um, I'm sure the Bitcoin investors would have an interesting time if they just looked at the price once a month. <laughs> I'm not sure whether we should call them investors or, or whether we should call them speculators. Let's, you've sort of led us into the UK there. I guess if the pension money does move into equities, that would be... It would be a boon for the stock pickers. Um, but the UK is often touted now as being undervalued. Um, yeah. Brexit's out of the way. We're seeing the US private equity firms circling over, over some of the big, or some of the listed companies. And we'll come back to private equity. But do you think the UK market is undervalued at the moment relative to other markets? I do. Um, but that, that doesn't put me in a minority. say that the UK have been relatively uh, cheap versus the rest of the world for some time. And some of that is these structural forces um, of pension funds disinvesting from the public markets. And indeed, insurance companies have been forced to disinvest from the public markets as well um, because of the Solvency II regime, which governs insurance companies. Remember, they were a big source of, of, of equity investments and perhaps disappeared with profit schemes uh, and no longer in fashion. Um, and... Um, the regulations make it impossible for insurance companies to, to bear the risk of any public equities. So there's been this, this drift away from public equities by our major institutions, which has been a drag. Secondly, there's been a drift away from global, from regional investment to global. It was quite common for a pension scheme when I started my career in the 1980s, a pension scheme would have 40% in UK equities, and then it would have 20% in global equities. Regional investment generally is dead. It's not dead for small cap. It's not there for mid-cap. But for large-cap investment, most people would now look straight towards um, a global trust rather than to um, an investment trust. And Lowland, which I'm on, is unusual in that it's a mixture of large-cap, small-cap, mid-cap. That has a role to play in, in investment portfolios because of the small-cap and medium-cap effect. Um, but most money is now moving into, into global um, but, so the real question is whether overseas investors will see the UK as relatively 
cheap. Because I don't think we're going to get a, a reversal of UK investors generally being putting money into global as they buy new, uh, new equities for their, their defined contribution scheme. And there, I think there, there are good reasons for optimism. Um, there, there are a few things that hung over the UK. Scottish devolution, uh, Scottish uh, independence was one of them, perhaps seven will come back. Um, Brexit was another because clearly that created some economic uncertainty, whatever one's views about whether it was a good thing or a bad thing um, politically, it created economic uncertainty. And the UK, although it remained a very um, uh, attractive source of direct investment, I mean, we were still the second highest um, uh, in Europe, I think, for receiving direct investment. We hadn't been, the stock market's been left to, to rot a bit by overseas investors. Uh, and the pound came cheap, so you know, that's also a reason to look at UK UK assets. Because you know, now that Brexit's happened, okay, there's all, all sorts of second-order effects to come, and supply chains are being changed, and and you know, none of us knows exactly how it's going to come out. And the Bank of England, in its own uh, report, says you know, it's not it's not sure what the, the medium-term consequences are and how big they are. But you know, that uncertainty has has, has gone away. Pound looks cheap, and um, UK assets well governed, good governance structure, and um, relatively lax takeover rules. Albeit the government has now introduced legislation to um, uh, deal with strategically important assets, uh, but I think overseas investors will be attracted to the UK, and it's it's interesting seeing it in property and equities. So there's a, there is a wall of money. QE makes its way into institutions' pockets and institutions are flush with cash which they need to deploy and the UK looks like a good place to, to deploy it. The stable governmental system, the government with a significant majority that's got three and a half years to run, um, yes, UK, UK assets look cheap and I, I expect that there will be more private equity bars in UK, UK assets. How do you feel about these private equity buyers? Because I think the good side could be seen as that there's less short-termism, which is an, a frequent criticism of listed companies, and there's less dividend demand so that they can reinvest more. But they also have the reputation for asset stripping and loading companies up with debt. So what, what's your thoughts on private equity generally? Well, I've, all, I've always been very perplexed that the government doesn't level the playing field and between equity and debt, um, that you know, we make interest deductible and we don't make dividends deductible. I think there should be parity of treatment because otherwise they are causing de-equitisation and they are causing an increase in debt. And a private equity investor has a much higher tolerance for debt than a public uh, equity investor. But remember that that process has occurred in public markets as well in that gearing ratios have gone up steadily um, for efficient balance sheet use. do, do I think there's a sort of moral issue attached to private equity owners versus um, uh, public equity owners? Well, uh, to some extent, yes. I mean, there are the asset strippers, but, but others will rave about their period of being in private equity, um, where it's a clear governance structure, answerable to, to one shareholder, uh, a willingness to deal with short-term uh, disruption um, or short-term reductions in profits or for long-term investment gains. Uh, and I, I think the UK stock market could learn plenty by being uh, much less short-term, which is 
something which a lot of people complain about for all of my career. I think Peter Harrison at Schroeder's Government uh, FT complaining about UK short-termism as well. So uh, that's but that's in our own hands to be able to change. I mean, I've long thought that uh, that UK investors should be willing to have bigger stakes in a smaller number of companies. If portfolios have been too diverse, they can be much much of the diversification gain in the first 20 stocks that you buy. So they've been too diverse. If you have much less diverse diversification or over-diversification, you end up with bigger stakes in a smaller company, number of companies, and you end up caring about the company as an owner rather than just as a share. And in corporate governance, the, the G part of the ESG um, focus at the moment is, is actually could, could be a, a force for good if investors do behave as, as owners and do engage in discussions with management and are willing to accept short-term reductions in profitability for long-term investment gains, which otherwise board public companies find it very difficult to, to do. I think it is good that with, when we got the big fall in UK profits last year, there was an even bigger fall in, in dividends. Actually, that was a, the big reset that the UK needed. Um, the UK was over-distributed. Uh, the UK's obsession with profits today was over-distribution of profits. And whilst profits for UK PLC will probably return to 2019 levels this year, possibly early next, uh, dividends won't. So we have had a big re re readjustment, and perhaps there is now a willingness and an understanding that public companies too need to be able to invest to survive. Um, uh, but I don't find a moral objection in private equity keeping us all on our toes. You know, these are competitors for assets, and they might be reminding us that these assets are cheap. You know, Kayleigh Morrison's was cheap, and you know, that was seen by an American investor, um, but wasn't seen by UK investors. So it's good, fair competition for assets. But I do think what is unfair is that private equity is able to you know, offset the debt. Um, and you know, that, that's a, a problem. Um, and I wish the government were brave enough to deal with, with the equity versus debt thing. I don't think higher levels of debt are not good. Um, there's an economic theory in Modigliani and Miller which says that it doesn't matter what, what your capital structure is, whether equity or debt. But it does because the, the your ability to absorb shocks with equity is much higher than your ability to absorb shocks with, shocks with debt. And too much debt takes us back to the beginning of our conversation. Is there disinflation or inflation in the in the pipeline? You know, too much debt does make your economy vulnerable to deflationary shocks when there is a demand shock, unless it's counteracted by government policy. And that really becomes the crux of the conversation is whether government policy has been more than enough to deal with the shock, and in fact now too much with the US posting $1,200 checks to citizens, and it's not that's making its way into markets, and, and when it, there's a slowdown in the US, perhaps they'll post another $1,200 check, and, and modern monetary theory, this roguish uh, theory, which really just says that basically there isn't a constraint on government expenditure other than um, the operational capacity of the economy. Therefore, governments shouldn't feel constrained, haven't feel any budget constraint at all, um, is very much in vogue in the United States. And you know, the, size, the size of the um, 
of the stimulus there is just staggering. Um, the size of the stimulus here has probably been about right, and, the, and Europe has probably been you know, not quite enough. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up modern monetary theory there, because I was, I was thinking about it as you were talking. How influential do you think it's been as a theory? Because, yeah, as you said, it's been big in the US, and, and then possibly how how damaging might it be? Well, uh, I went to the effort of reading some modern monetary theory uh, before this, before I knew I was, I was talking to you. And um, the significant proponents in the US are... Stephanie Kelton and, and L. Randall Ray and, and Mitchell and Patsy. And, um, it, it's, a, it's a simple observation, really, which is that countries with monetary sovereignty, i.e. states that issue the, the money of account and, and issue the currency and issue obligations against themselves, denominated in their own shares of account, and raise taxes um, in their own units of account, um, and have a, a lot of flexibility versus countries that don't issue in their own currency, i.e. countries that would have been on the gold standard in the in, in years before the, the gold standard collapsed in the 1970s, um, or indeed the European Union, where countries are issuing current uh, obligations against themselves in the currency which they don't control. Um, so really, it's just an observation that's, that's in the sort of the category of the bleeding obvious. Um, and the US has more monetary sovereignty than any country because it's got the the reserve currency, what General de Gaulle called the exorbitant privilege um, of being able to issue debt uh, to other nations which they were willing to hold in your own currency. Um, and the UK is, is in a similar position, but much less, let's say. There's much more of a budget constraint here on that sort of issue. Uh, and so that, their observation is, look, the only constraint is one of resources, um, a real resource constraint. Other than that, don't worry about a level of debt versus GDP, because you can always just use the central bank to uh, buy the debt and create the demand. And they, they, to quote them, they say modern economics, modern economies usually operate with sufficient slack that even large boosts to aggregate demand are unlikely to put much pressure on wages and prices. So it is a version of what John Maynard Keynes and Irving Fisher and Linsky and other economists that are being executed which is that in a period in which you've suffered a, a big inflate, a big um, deflationary shock, that government should step in somehow um, with fiscal deficits or, or supporting the money supply, the stock of money. You don't want the money stock contracting as it did in the 1930s. Uh, so it's, it's nothing really more exciting than that, other than it's with a greater degree of enthusiasm that they wish to incur such, uh, such debts and use such monetary policy. Um, so it's really sort of Keynes, with, Keynes on steroids. And, um, and that's, that, I think, is, is, is complacent um, and doesn't, doesn't reflect um, the, the reality that actually we're quickly meeting supply constraints. I mean, how can they not say we're meeting supply constraints um, where every company uh, reporting is, is, is worried about you know, supply issues? Um, you know, the car industry is worried about supply issues. Um, so every uh, there's quite a, a, um, a good analytical firm in the US that sends out sends out uh, uh, weekly bulletins, and they've gone through a whole load of, of um, 
industry magazines, which are probably not your usual reading, or indeed my usual reading, but you know, the transportation, this is the sort of stuff that would normally be on, have, have I got news for you, but it's the, it's the less funny bit. The, the computer and electronic parts, you know, lead time now 16 to 52 weeks, transportation equipment, strong sales continue and output is at 100%, and we are suffering from chip shortages, chemical products. Um, even when we can get raw materials, manpower has been a major concern. Fabricated metals, um, electrical equipment and appliances. Every industry that they went through, the, the industry magazine was talking about these, these constraints. So I think that it's complacency, and back to that complacency about central banks and the omniscience of central banks. And credibility theory has become excess credibility theory. Mm. People believe too much in central banks and are starting to take more risk than they should, uh, and to buy the confidence of the, of, of the U.S. central banks, and I, of, of global central banks, and I would be skeptical. I think it's right to be skeptical about the, the power of central banks and the power of the monetary authorities and the fiscal authorities to get this absolutely right. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.